You're listening to From Maker to Manufacturing, a podcast about what it really takes to grow a handmade business. Hey guys, welcome to episode two of From Maker to Manufacturing. I'm your host, Sarah Cooley. My guest today is Amy Stringer Mowat, who is the co-owner of A Heirloom, a housewares company based in Brooklyn, New York. I met Amy a couple years ago. We met through social media, but then we were booth neighbors at a renegade craft fair in New York. And it was really great to get to talk to her and hear more about the background for how her business got started and how she got to where she is today. I hope you guys enjoy our conversation. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hi, Amy. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm doing well. You're in, we're both in the same state, although not in yes. the same room. Right. <laughs> Thank you for taking a break from your vacation to talk to me. Oh, thanks for inviting me. This is great. You know how I love Michigan and I love talking to you, so it'll be great. <laughs> so for those people who don't know you, um, why don't you introduce yourself? Um, my name is Amy Stringer Mowat, and I co-run, well, mostly run myself now, a housewares company called A Heirloom out of Brooklyn, New York. Um, but I'm originally from Michigan, and um, you know, I think that's probably the simplest way to describe what I am at the moment. I'm also a mother of a four-year-old and a wife of Bill Mowat, who is also part of um, A Heirloom, and um, yeah, that's us. That's awesome. So you would describe A Heirloom as a housewares company. Is that always how you would have <laughs> described it? Um, you know, honestly, I always call our journey somewhat of a journey of accidental entrepreneurialism. Um, and I don't think that Bill and I actually set out to have a housewares company together, but it's just how it sort of happened in 2010. I think, you know, our story is the same with a lot of makers of that time. Um, we, you know, I had lost my job um, and... I had been looking for something to do um, while doing freelance work. Um, so we worked um, with the Etsy platform and put our uh, a wedding project that we did for 2000, our wedding in 2010 on Etsy. And we took great pictures and it really kind of went viral at a time when you could still go viral, I think, on Etsy and online. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> um, you know, our state shape cutting boards really put us on the map and really um, got us moving forward as becoming sort of serious housewares designers. Awesome. So when you first, I, I, I know a little bit of the story, but mm -hmm. essentially your husband created this state shaped cutting board for your wedding, right? It's true. Yeah. I mean, we were doing all of our decor. Bill and I both have degrees or we have our master's in architecture and we met, um, at Columbia University um, and graduated at the same time. And several years later, we ended up getting married. And at the time, we had actually both started a fabrication company in Brooklyn, which Bill actually still runs. So we had a lot of capability to make a lot of the wedding decor and really personalize the event for ourselves. 
Um, the stage shapes were actually a really last minute project because I've been sort of obsessed with cheese and sort of all the different kinds of food cultures over the years. Um, and I just said to him when I'm like, we've got to have states that are cheese boards. This is great. This will make all of our out of town guests <laughs> feel really comfortable. You know, I think I'd been looking at a lot of stationery um, and a lot of the mm-hmm. stationery at the time had hearts on hometowns and, you know, little maps were drawn and it was really very much about stationary. I think if, when I look back, so Bill cut out Michigan and he cut out of Connecticut and he carved, um, a a heart on our hometowns and we use these, um, rather large boards. They were like three times larger than what they are now, um, for a cheese display at the wedding. Um, and yeah. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. So when you, at, so from that point, I mean, that's just a fun project. That's a right. singular project. What right. was the step from that project to initially going on Etsy and say, hey, I'm going to try to sell some of these? Well, honestly, the uh, the wedding guests were kind of going a little crazy about them. I think especially since Michigan was in two parts, it was very unique. It had the upper peninsula and had the lower peninsula. And coming from Michigan, I had assumed everybody had a state shape cutting board because, as you know, like Michiganders are obsessed with their (laughs) state. But apparently no one had ever done a cutting board with both parts at that time. So I think it was sort of that reaction and then putting it online just because there wasn't much else for me to do at the time. Mm, um, mm-hmm. It got picked up by the images that I took got picked up by a pretty popular blogger and it just kind of skyrocketed from there. So I think that's kind of just doing something like that's familiar looking and then honest, like putting your own twist on it kind of made it sort of a unique product for the marketplace at the time. Did I answer your question? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, no, don't worry about it. I think that was great. I mean, it. I think a lot of people around that time will have similar stories, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't have a job, and so mm-hmm. why not try to sell this thing that I was making, right? Um, online. And so when you're, when you said your husband was working for a fabrication company, so was all of the equipment that you needed to do this kind of at your disposal, or was there initial stuff you had to go out and buy and figure out um, equipment, well- like machinery wise? I mean, honestly, like Bill, Bill and I started the company uh, with mm-hmm. with a CNC router in 2005, um, and we were doing together with two other business partners. Um, we were running this fabrication company and doing large scale architectural projects in the city. So a lot of cabinetry, a lot of custom interiors, um, a lot of complex geometry, which is like a which is a word that we you know can touch on later on. But essentially, <laughs> we were digital manufacturers. That's how we were trained in school. Um, and we had run this company together. I had left. Um, so mm-hmm. and he had stayed and he had run. He has been running the company for the last 11 years with um, one of his business partners. So those machines were in our family. Um, you know, they mm-hmm. were something that he used to sort of support us. Um, over the last few years. And we, I think it was just me coming up with sort of a simpler way to use them or sort of a more generic way of using them that really made it click for us that we had these tools and we might as well, you know, scale up and really try to produce a lot of this product and really get as many out as we possibly could. So it was, it was sort of 
techniques and technology that we were very aware of. We just did not ever use them in such a straightforward kind of simple manufacturing sort of way that we decided to do the cutting boards as a company. So at, at what point did you realize that A Heirloom was a company or was something that you guys could do and you could do full time as a job? How long did, did that take? You know, honestly, it's funny. I think people really assume that the origin is sometime in 2010. And that's true. I mean, we did put them, the, the cutting boards on Etsy at that time. But it wasn't really until our first holiday season of 2010. So December, when we honestly sold like 3,500 cutting boards in two weeks, you know, direct to consumer with the holiday deadline looming and realizing that they were gifts, um, we just had to ramp up. We had to use like whatever resources we had to just kind of get those boards out and get those um, gifts out. So I think after that holiday season, probably early 2011, when, you know, press still was contacting us and still saying, you know, can we get images of Nevada? Can we get images of Washington? that we kind of knew that it wasn't just sort of something that was happening once and that, you know, we'd have to move on to something new. Um, we just kind of knew that there was some energy that could be harnessed and we would just sort of take it as far as we could go. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a slow, it was like a year long build probably to that point when we finally said, yes, this is a full time thing. And then honestly, like, did you have, yeah, mm -hmm. no, go ahead. I mean, we didn't incorporate the business until 2012, and we didn't really get a studio space until 2013. So each year we've tried something new. I think a lot of times nowadays you kind of see people that just kind of go for it right away, and you're like, wait, where'd this company come from? But I think, you know, it was a three to four year process for us to sort of get to a, a larger scale, for sure. Well, and I think the funny thing, you almost like just like uttered the thesis of this entire podcast, that whole feeling, wait, where did this company come from? <laughs> exactly. Most of the time, right. when you peel back those layers, that person's been That's doing exactly. it or trying to get it off the ground for right. two or three years or more mm -hmm. in, in many cases, you know? So I think that they're with, you know, all of the social media and stuff, it, exactly. it might seem very much like something is an overnight success, but most of the time that person's been working, you know, much longer and harder exactly. than, you know, exactly. they would want anyone to have seen. And I think all <laughs> I of never. Sudden, yeah. Sorry. I would say when I, when I started, there were no pictures like wide out shots of mm -hmm. the studio back, <laughs> back then because it was my parents' basement and exactly. it was the ugliest thing. Mm -hmm. Everything was such a mess. Yep. You're like all these people with their pretty downtown Los Angeles lofts and it's their windows and stuff. Los Angeles. I don't know what's going on. Are they giving free space away there? It's crazy. It's true. Yeah, it's I don't true. know. I do think that social media does put a kind of a skew on those kinds of things. And I also think two people are sort of somewhat like, you know, they want, to, they want their origin story, their origin date to be some sort of really special thing that like triples and doubles and quadruples every year. And... I can't say that, you know, that's been our story. And I'm not actually like super sad about that because I feel like we've learned a lot of things along the way. And now we know a certain amount of, you know, information to maybe get to those points where we do double and triple. And I think that's honestly what bootstrapping is all about to a certain extent. I don't think 
you know, we're not funded. And I think there's there should be somewhat of a distinction that there are, are investors out there investing in smaller companies. And, you know, when you have to put all your resources back in yourself, it's a slower process mm-hmm. to a certain extent. Anyways. Yeah, it it's true. I think that there should be it's it's I don't know if it's fair to say like there should be some disclose like disclosure when it's like hey we got a bunch of money exactly but at the same time I I don't know that that's fair to them either you know that's their some people just had a lot of money some people's parents just gave them a lot of money you know it has to come from somewhere (laughs) well I think you just have to be as an entrepreneur you have to realize too that it happens all different kinds of ways um just as you were saying though like it doesn't happen for a lot of people right away it also takes time to sort of develop um, the business so that it is, you know, prof- more profitable each year. So I don't know. Does that make any sense? Sort of. No, it makes sense. I think that sometimes people, especially I've seen people who launch on Etsy get stuck in this profitability problem, mm-hmm. right? They mm-hmm. got excited. They looked at what they exactly. made and then they were like, what would I pay for this? And that was their entire pricing strategy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So have you guys, I, I, I don't know enough really about point. your it's history. Really Did you end up changing your price points at all? Or, or from the beginning, <laughs> were you really conscious of like your profit margins? That's really a really great question. It's true. I, you know, I was also pricing things to sell because when we started, we sold a ton and I was thinking, okay, great. If we keep the things at this price, we're just going to keep selling, selling, selling like crazy. But honestly, and it kind of leads into your, some of your other questions, we had to change our manufacturer. You know, we needed to ramp up and bring in a manufacturing partner. And the minute you bring in a manufacturing partner, you're really talking about losing a lot of your profitability or at least changing the margin on your profit quite a bit because you're paying someone to get the work done. So we, you know, honestly, Bill couldn't, we couldn't use his shop and we couldn't use his space. And it wasn't sustainable for us to continue on as the main manufacturers. So even before Etsy sort of, started asking people to sort of disclose all of these things. We were already looking for new people and in, in manufacturing spaces for, you know, the state shapes to get done. So we've gone backwards. And as we've talked about in the past, too, wholesale is a very different game for us. I, you know, I didn't talk to anybody about wholesale for, you know, until 2014. And it wasn't until mm-hmm. then, and I still wasn't super prepared to realize what the pricing would be for material, to pay someone to make it for shipping and all that kind of thing. So I've definitely struggled with pricing since the day we started. Um, And I know, you know, we have been copied and we do have one of the more expensive, I would say the best quality, you know, Mm -hmm. state shape cutting board out there. But, you know, I can't change my prices year to year. I can't really, you know, sort of raise them or lower them. They kind of need to stay exactly where they are. I can change the scale and the size of the product and try to meet a different marketplace doing something like that. But honestly, like with the newer work, we're pricing it more appropriately. We've learned our lesson from the States and we really have, you know, the cake stands and the muddlers and the hardwood cutting boards. We've really been able to sort of take into account an equation that makes sense for us now. But you're right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's difficult. So when so when you realized you had to go look for an outside manufacturer, mm-hmm. how, are they still local to you or how did you approach that whole process? Well, since we've sort of been in this community of CNC routers and we had learned how to use one, we had learned where to purchase one and how to do the work, we had a, a really great network. 
and um, we started working with a gentleman who really actually was producing like our our CNC modeled models for graduate schools. So he, you know, left New Jersey and took his whole manufacturing business up to New Hampshire. And um, he was a perfect fit for us. Um, he had the space and the capability to do fulfillment for us. Um, so we just kind of worked within our network and found someone that was pretty perfect for us. That's so wonderful. I yeah. think that so many people feel overwhelmed. I feel like one of the main questions I get all the time has to do with with sourcing, whether it's materials mm-hmm. or, you know, a manufacturing partner. Um, and, and the questions come like, well, how did you find them? Or I've been looking. And usually my answer is just like, well, I just Googled a lot. Exactly, exactly. I think for the turned objects, we've definitely worked with people that we didn't know. So we're working with like people that have digital lathes. So we're designing the product in the computer and they're, you know, using computer CAD CAM technologies to turn our, our wood, you know, cake stands and muddlers and things like that. And those were Google searches. Um, and we keep refining the process with people. We keep finding and people are, you know, wood terming companies are actually reaching out to us now. So, we, mm. you know, we're getting more of an opportunity to sort of get the pricing that we want to get um, just by, you know, continuing to sort of search and ask and talk to people. I mean, I'm not super good at sharing all of these resources. I'm, I'm from a different generation. I feel like everybody's like open source, like sharing information about, you know, where things are made. But, you know, I just, I feel like you're building these really specific relationships and it's important to have someone who's really looking out for you and your business. No, I, I mean, I agree. I, I think that there is a little bit of a difference. I, I still get taken aback when someone point blank asks me <laughs> where we get something. Right. And in the back of my head, I'm like, why would I tell you that? Um, <laughs> There's trade secrets. But, there always has been. Right. right you know, it's. It's right. It, it is there. There's a kind of two schools of thought on that. But I think ultimately. Usually I will give them most of the information, maybe not necessarily all of it, but I will do it because I have confidence that they what they don't have is me mm-hmm. yeah right they true. don't have the secret sauce they don't I know it would be hard to catch up to us if you were just trying to blatantly rip us off mm-hmm. at this point because I know how expensive it was for us to get here right and I <laughs> so it would be it would be tough like if someone has something to offer to you that's great you can definitely sort of mm-hmm. build on different strengths between you know what people have information about but you know yeah anyways Usually people don't have information to give you. They just they just want information. <laughs> Nowadays, everybody's But I'd hungry. love to get get a, the two-way street thing going. But, you well, know. That's what I look for when I do it. If I do do it, I'm trying to find something that, you know, something to return. <laughs> I don't know. It's true. A post so on social media, s- something. I don't know. <laughs> Mm, that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you touched on some of these newer products, but we haven't talked about them specifically. So for you guys, I know you had this one big hit that became like this mm-hmm. thing that you were known for. Mm-hmm. And was it difficult to move away from that? I, I think sometimes as, as designers, um, we have this bright shiny syndrome right we're yeah, tired of it definitely. we want to do something new but then it's still selling and then you're like "Ugh, why are people still buying this you know was it tough to to come up with new products or how do you always had them in the back of your mind I think in retrospect it's funny I 
you know, we had resources to do new work, which I think is a big, you know, advantage to having a success story right off, you know, from the start. But I do think it was tough because, you know, I was sort of wondering, like, when I saw sales sort of decline a little bit, maybe one holiday season, we didn't sort of like go as far as I thought we were going to go with a product uh, or with the states. I kept thinking like, well, then we're just not getting to the right people. We're not doing this kind of thing. We're not doing that. And then I started realizing, oh, they are looking for something new. You know, I was not a, I'm not a collector. I'm a shopper. I like clothes and things like that, but I'm not constantly looking for new housewares or new gifts. And I realized, oh, you're in this community of people that want new things from you. Your customers need new things from you or want to see what's next. And so I think it was a tough transition for me to realize that like our baby in a way mm-hmm. um, wasn't everyone's like, you know, perfect child, I guess, or wasn't always going to be like the go-to gift because they had already given them out to enough people and they were looking for new. So mm-hmm. I think it was a tough transition for me to realize that like, and to kind of get smart about the fact that like, oh, this is a business and, you know, this is the design slash housewares company and we need to constantly be evolving the product line. And I think also, too, I just keep things so personal. So I'm always making things that I think that I would want or need or it's always been about collaborations. Oh, someone's like, oh, I'd love to, you know, do something like this or have a cocktail model and we do recipe, you know, we do cocktails and things like that. And so I think really this year and last year, I really realized like we need to be seasonal. We need to be thinking about like the different, you know, not necessarily all four seasons, but definitely spring, summer, fall, winter, and just really mm-hmm. sort of creating um, a storyline, you know, and just kind of where does the brand continue to sort of grow and what kinds of stories are we trying to tell? I think that it it, it does. It's interesting to me because I think that if you look at your experience, it lines up a lot with when you guys started going into wholesale. Because mm-hmm. when you start going into wholesale, exactly. it changes your brain about how you have to think about your business because you do think seasonally mm-hmm. because you start to think about the shows. You start mm-hmm. to think about well, what are we going to have for this show? What Because the number one question everyone asks you is what's new? What's, what's new? <laughs> right. Right. So yeah. how, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, that transition has I mean, I, I feel like it probably has helped you guys a lot in order you thinking about new products and trying to think about this as a business. Like you said, it's it's a bit of a different mindset than when you're selling online, because especially with Etsy, I feel like you get in the habit of like, I made something, let's put it up and see exactly. if people like it. Exactly. And now you're coming out with catalogs and collections and all this other stuff. So can you talk a little bit about how that transition has affected you guys? Um, you know, honestly, the, it has affected us in the sense that like, I do think one, there's a difference in cash flow, which is a big thing for a business, which I think you probably know a lot about as well. And I think there's also a difference in amount of resources and having the right sort of staff around you to actually get all of this extra work done. Um, and I think, you know, it's also, interesting to try to figure out how to work with, with larger retailers and how to actually get things into a new marketplace. So it's opening up all of these new sort of business and marketing questions. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Reminding- I think what the question was, um, you know, has, has going into wholesale, like, or how has going into wholesale 
changed how you look at your business overall and changed right. how you how you operate and and the ways that you have to think. I mean, I always joke, I say to people, my brain is six to eight months in the future at all times mm -hmm. because I have to be. Because otherwise, I'm only focusing on the day-to-day -day and things just slip by you. Before you know it, it's two months later and you haven't shot your spring catalog or whatever it is. It's a, it's a crazy world we live in, I think. <laughs> it's true, though. But it's like I, now that you've sort of like said it again, it reminds me of the fact that I've always worked on some editorial calendar. So hmm. being approached for holiday gift guides, you know, 2010 through 2013, I honestly like would put all of my energy and time into that holiday lookbook and just really mm -hmm. trying to get that holiday gift guide sort of placement, just realizing that that was like the key to our, our success. And that's changed so much. It's so much not about printed media and it's all about being online. So you're kind of working with these like I would say wholesale and editorial are so similar, but then there's also the digital and the social. It's a very different timeline. So it's kind of like micro collections all the time. But like I said, originally, I do think it's like an issue of cash flow and just understanding that there's going to be like certain slow times. And really, when you have the resources to kind of put together a very clear edited collection. And I think that's also another issue for me, too, is I think when you have something that's successful, you continue to think that you're going to have that same success story every time. And I've really realized that that's not going to be the case, that I need to put three or four things together that I think are really beautiful, really functional. And, you know, like, um, you know, for me, I'm also looking for to make products that are editorial because a lot of our work is, mm -hmm. you know, stylists and people kind of coming through and wanting specific things made. So it has changed the work. Mm. It's it's changing the work. It hasn't completely changed the work, but it's changed. It's changing the work so that it's more focused and sort of, you know, kind of not necessarily trying to do all things at once, but trying to do two or three or four products just really nicely and cohesively. I think you guys, you know, you were probably pretty heavy holiday in uh -huh. the beginning and that affects cash flow too, you know, yeah. even without the wholesale stuff. But, you know, what what are some of the big things or the the points that you you in your stick out in your memory as wow, I can't believe we got over that or we got through that in a successful way or an unsuccessful way, mm -hmm. I don't know. Um that that you really faced. I mean, I think for me, I I kind of made some bullet points and currently, it's just, um, I, I'm having like definitely a challenge with staffing and just trying to find a way to sort of disperse some of the hats that I'm wearing. Um, and I think this is like the first year where we've had, you know, a couple, two full-time employees. And it's been amazing to be able to spread some of the work out. But then once you see certain things getting done, you realize there's gaps in other areas and you're like, oh, I need more people. I need more, you know, someone that's dedicated to do just this. And then we could really sort of ramp up on that. So along with staffing is the whole idea of funding. You know, where do you find the money to, to sort of have all of these people around you? And I think also then where do you find the space like in New York City um, to do all of these kinds of things and to create a work environment where people really want to come and enjoy what they're doing um, and, you know, not feel like they're, you know, part-time or temporary people, but they they have real full-time jobs. So creating a, 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 
a culture, like a, an office culture at the same time as trying to create a business and also staying professional because I'm working with some really great, you know, young ladies, like young women right now. And I'm like, I'm mentoring them, you know, like how do I stay mm-hmm. on top of it and make sure that they understand as their first jobs that this is, you know, a serious place to be. So I think those have been, you know, my three challenges currently with the business. Um, And also, and there's also on the side of that, there's finding new markets and trying to work with larger retailers and things like that as well. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that those are very, those are three very relatable, you know, challenges I've dealt with, Mm -hmm. with all three of those. And one of the like most interesting ones that I, I feel like comes up with me is the matter of company culture Mm -hmm. and hiring people and wanting it to be a real job that Mm -hmm. right that they consider a real job but then realizing wait can I do that or can Mm -hmm. I make that kind of environment it's a real how far you stretch yourself yeah I think a lot of people don't think about that Mm -hmm. but company culture starts as soon as you have that that first employee and it's I mean, it's I've had for sure. Yeah, I've definitely learned a lot over the last few years. And it is, yeah, there is some sort of extra sort of mystique that needs to be sort of created in order to keep things running well. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is, I think, my one of my favorite questions. And mm-hmm. it's, what do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about your business? Um, I think, you know, I kind of touched on in the beginning, I think people kind of assume that once you've had like this sort of bestseller and keystone cornerstone product that it's just smooth sailing and it's just sort of like up, up, up. Um, And we've definitely had to sort of rethink things and kind of redo things in order to continue to grow. And also that at one point, it was sort of one kind of business. And I definitely think now we're doing like our, our, the pie chart in a sense has grown into like four different sectors. So it's not, it's not been Mm -hmm. a straight, it's not been a straight shot. And we haven't always thought wholesale has been awesome. And we haven't always had a workspace and we haven't always had, you know, a team of people. So it's, it's been slow growth. And I think people assume Mm -hmm. that we've been around forever at, at five years. And I just, I don't, think five years is forever. I think five years is a really short amount of time in a business life. And when people say, oh, yeah, you've been around for a really long time. I'm like, no, that's not a long time as a business. <laughs> Talk to me when it's a 35 year old family run company or a 40 year old family company. And then we can talk about, you know, how far we've come. No, I had a conversation with a woman today who showed at the New York gift show mm-hmm. in 1968 mm-hmm. was their first show. Yeah. And she's like, and that blew my mind. Yeah, (laughs) right. She's, I was like, okay, so, you know, five years, nothing, you know, in the, I think it's the difference between this whole, like, this internet culture that we're we're in, right, Mm -hmm. that it's like, oh, you, five years, that's like established, but in the, in the real business world, not to say that we're not in the real business Mm -hmm. world, but, you know, 20 years ago, five years you're that's nothing right like it's just you're just starting out you're still starting out so I think it's important to like release that pressure from ourselves Mm -hmm. that we feel about like oh I should be something or whatever that something is you know yeah I agree and I think that is a big misconception now with social media and how things are sort of perceived online okay so when you're thinking about the future of your business Mm -hmm. What's really exciting you the most right now? What are you the most excited about? 
for the future? At the moment, I'm most excited about we're going to do a name change. I've finally sort of been, you know, kind of people have asked me for many years awkwardly, you know, the name is A heirloom. What does the A stand for? What is this? They don't know how to say it. It's been the bane of my existence, but also I haven't really figured out the right way to change it. So I'm getting excited Mm -hmm. about, I guess that's called a rebranding strategy, but honestly, I think it's also like a (laughs) a refocusing of like what kinds of things that we, what products we make and who we're sort of working with and what our ideal customer is. So, you know, we're doing a name change. I'm getting very excited about that because I think it's going to sort of give us a bigger sort of um, sphere to work within, in a sense. And I think I'm also really excited about the fact that like we are five years into it and I have sort of gained sort of an encyclopedia, you know, a small encyclopedia of knowledge. And I'm looking forward to taking time to sit down and realize what I've learned and, you know, what kind of mistakes we've made and where we've had successes and to just kind of push things forward based on taking like a little break and looking at what's what's actually worked and what hasn't worked. Um, and I'm also really looking forward to sort of switching the bootstrapping mentality into more of a restart sort of startup style of business. So, you know, we're going to start mm. making our getting our you know paperwork together and getting our books together and really looking at the possibility of working with other people, and you know, hi, you know, having an opportunity to maybe work with, with more capital and to sort of get to that place where we can work with people that I call grownups but really they're probably just people <laughs> that are like more expert at running a business and, and, and understand, you know, how to do certain things that we don't have time to learn anymore. So those are the things that excite me. And of course, new products and just really, like I said earlier on, just kind of staying focused and really refining something seasonally and keeping it fairly simple along the way. That's really exciting. What is the timeline for the name change? Do you know? Um, well, we just purchased the URL um, for, oh. I know, so I guess that's a big step. That's and, important. Everybody listening right now, secret <laughs> tip, please yeah. do not, please, 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 I've seen people do this. Do right. not name your company and before so. you have bought a domain. <laughs> I'm serious. Exactly. Search the domain. The domain search should be part of your business naming process. People, seriously. I big, mean, it was big like, tip. L- it listen, was three steps. Listen to me. Yes. Get the URL. <laughs> see if it's trademarked and then, mm-hmm. you know, work backwards. And the first thing we did was URL. So, um, yeah, That's exciting. It's, it's probably going to come. I mean, I think we'll probably shoot for July just because that's a good time for us. It's a good time of year for us to kind of rebrand. So, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a huge rebrand. We'll just be explaining what the A stands for. So I get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's okay. You don't have to yeah. tell me now. We'll all find I mean, out soon. I'm like, July, I, everybody. I don't even know if I can tell you. Do I have to like try <laughs> it first? So we have a couple like rapid fire questions oh, that I didn't send you in advance. <laughs> so get ready. Are these like one answer <laughs> questions? Yeah. They can be one, you know, one it can be first. short. You don't feel, don't feel the need to ex- expand on it if you don't have anything to expand. Okay. Who is the first person that you go to for advice, business or otherwise? I would definitely say um, Bill is definitely the first person that I discuss things with. Um, he is not working with me day to day, so we mm-hmm. do have the opportunity to bounce ideas off of each other, and he's definitely my resource. He's got great ideas. So, 
awesome. Okay, if you were starting your business from scratch today, what would you do differently? Or would you do anything differently? um, I think I would have, nowadays, I would have paid attention a little bit more to social media and understanding how it worked. I don't think we, we didn't have to do that for the first three or four years of where we Mm -hmm. are now. And I think it's so important. And I also, you know, I was talking to someone else about it. It's fun. It actually does add, I don't personally love it, but it can be fun when you meet new people that inspire you to do different things or, you know, they style something that you've made a different way or they just show your product in another light. So I think, you know, honestly, I would have started that earlier just so that we could have mm-hmm. been maybe a little bit more established um, in a sense. But I also think I would have done things differently in the sense that I would have kind of kept up with my books a little bit better. Like we've been good about it, but mm. now we just finally do have a bookkeeper, you know, five years in a day, you know, like a weekly bookkeeper. And I think it's really awesome to see those pie charts, to see where things are growing to understand where money is going and what kind of revenue is coming in and where, you know, where you're seeing growth. And I think that's something that I've been sort of in the dark about for the last four years. So that's, you know, something that I wish I would have been a little bit more savvy about in the beginning. Yeah, for sure. I understand. We, yeah. we just got, we got somebody to help, but they're not helping quite yet on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning, I think I thought, Oh, I can handle it. You know, I can do a lot of the bank rec stuff, but ultimately it's the thing that falls down to the bottom of your list. And then you're faced with this mountain instead of a molehill and you don't want to do it. And then it just gets worse and worse after that. So, and it's a road bookkeepers people. Yeah. It's a roadmap. Like it really shows you where things are going. And also if you get the, you know, if you have the ability to have that help, you can do the the more Mm -hmm. interesting things. So you get burned out less. Yeah. Well, it's amazing what seeing that laid out in front of you can help, like how much it can really help you with mm-hmm. your roadmap, with making mm-hmm. those decisions, mm-hmm. knowing, okay, in six months, I will have the cash to do this so I can make this decision now exactly. to do X or whatever. And you would never know if, if you weren't paying attention to that kind of stuff. I think a lot of this online Instagram, social media, like we are all in business, you know, ultimately mm-hmm. it might look beautiful, but we're in the business of making money and creating revenue Mm -hmm. and being somewhat serious about that and just realizing that that's like one of the top sort of important things about being a business is revenue. So being serious about it. Understand. Mm -hmm. No, you have to take it seriously. And I think somebody told me, you know, it's funny because you did hit this five year mark, Mm -hmm. but someone said for the first five years, the only thing you really should be focusing on is growing top line revenue. Mm-hmm. Ah. don't worry so much about the bottom line grow mm-hmm. the sales mm-hmm. if your yeah. sales are growing year over year but like oh, you're not turning a profit quite yet mm-hmm. but there's there's a real increase in sales the banks are still interested in you there's still your, your finances still look good on the top line as long as you're not you know mm-hmm. if you're just putting all that money back into the business it's okay mm-hmm. don't worry about it just keep if sales are it. still growing you're still you're still doing your job exactly okay last one What's more important, dreams or plans? I am the dreamer in my business. Um, And so I would say now I need to be focusing more uh, more on the planning side of things. And I think if you have a good plan in place, then it leaves you the freedom to dream bigger. Um, And I think, you know, if you think about it from an architectural standpoint, you don't just sort of 
start with dreams, building a building, you start with mm-hmm. plans, you lay a foundation, you have, you know, you look at flow, you look at all these different kinds of scenarios, and then you go through and build a building. And at some point in any architect's career, you want to have this inspiring piece of architecture left into the world. So I think if you lay a good plan, you can have something that's sort of beautiful and dreamlike at the end. That's so beautiful. Was it? I don't know. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You tied it all back. You tied it all back together. Well, thank you so much for for joining me and for hopping on uh, this new podcast adventure that we're starting here. Mm -hmm. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Amy. Sarah, this has been great. Thanks for listening to episode two of From Maker to Manufacturing. I'm your host, Sarah Cooley. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah Cooley or check me out on Instagram at Simply Curated. As always, I'd love if you could subscribe to the show in iTunes so you never miss an episode. And for more details about the podcast, including show notes and links from today's show, check out FromMakerToManufacturing.com. Thank you so much, guys, and I can't wait for the next episode. Bye.